Thanks, Wilson. Wasn't that awesome? Yeah, that was really great, guys. Thank you very much. Lori and I have been married 44 years. Just a couple weeks ago, we had our 44th wedding anniversary. I've said this often, well, in, in varieties of situations, but marriage just gets better and better the longer you're married. And we're, I, I feel like we're in the best season ever, although it's been good all along. <laughs> uh, the, only, the only thing I've had a heart attachment to other than Jesus longer than Lori are the Steelers. <laughs> and um, so I'm going to start with a very short story that involves both the Steelers and my beautiful wife, Lori. <laughs> this was in the late 70s, probably, I don't know, 77, maybe 78. And... Um, I was watching the Steelers play the Oakland Raiders in a playoff game, and Lori was in the room reading a book, and towards the end of the game, you know how like these games are touch and go to the end, and there's, there might be a key play. I think it was an interception right at the end of the game that kept the Raiders from scoring and beating the Steelers. And when that interception, when they made that interception, I just jumped out of the chair, both hands in the air, just shouting, you know, I don't, I don't know what I shouted, but shouting something. And um, I looked over at Lori, and she put her book down, and she said, you should get so excited about God. <laughs> so I looked at her, and I said, leave me alone, woman. <laughs> you know, I, I'm smarter than that. I, I'm quite sure I thought that, or something very much like it. But why, why is it okay to be exuberant about a, a football game, but not about God? That's the question. Now, you Bengals fans, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know, like, when the Bengals maybe almost beat another team, you know how good that feels? You know, we have Patriot fans in this church, too. I don't know if you're willing to admit it, but um, like, if you're a Patriots fan, you know how good it feels when your team wins a championship without cheating? <laughs> you know, that, that's just primo right there, man. That's really, really good stuff. So, you know, I think Jesus uh, was a joyful person, and, and I think he was an expressive worshiper. And I can't find an exact verse that teaches that, but I think there's a lot of indication that lends itself that direction. And so today, I'm going to talk about a home filled with joyful worship, that Jesus grew up in a home that was filled with joyful, expressive worship. And really to talk about that, let's just take a moment and talk about worship uh, you know, before, before we actually look at uh, some evidence for this, that Jesus was a joyful and expressive worshiper. But ultimately, worship is like the recognition that someone else is so much greater than you, so much more beautiful than you, so much more wonderful than you, that you, you just really can't live without them. And so they become the center of your life, the center of your existence. Now, it's possible for a person to think that of a, a, a woman that they admire or a man that, they're de that they want to marry. It's possible for us to, to get into that type of a relationship that's almost like worshiping another person or worshiping a career or some other aspect of life. But when it comes 
to real worship, as we're thinking of it biblically, worship is the recognition that God deserves the central focus and the central place in my life. That he created me, and he, because he is my creator, and because he is my redeemer through Jesus who died on the cross for me so I could come into an intimate, close relationship with God as father. For, for everything he is and the way he created me to be in relationship with him, he is deserving of first place. And when we say that, I'm not saying that he should be the first priority. Like he's number one priority and then there are other priorities under him. If you look at it that way, then he gets a certain percentage of the emphasis, but then other things get a percentage too. And those other things could vie for number one. It's, it's different, it's not, that, that's, that's not the right way to look at it. When we, when we say that we're gonna worship God, we're gonna be worshipers of God, think of it like this. He is the center of my life around which all other things revolve. Okay, he's not the first in a list of priorities. He is the, he is the center of everything and everything else in my life revolves around him. Otherwise, you could have Jesus as number one and work as number three or whatever. It, G, work wouldn't have to even be connected to Jesus. It's, well, that's my third priority. I'm focused on that right now, not number one priority. But when you view Jesus as the center and that everything else in my life revolves around him, then he's connected to everything in my life. And then I live a holistic life before God. That's, what, that's really what integrity is. But that's also what worship is. And so when we think of worship, we need to understand just some real basic truths about it. In Mark 7, Jesus gives us some uh, good insight into worship. Jesus said this. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But they worship in vain. Another translation says, their worship is a farce because they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Now, there are three main things in this, in this verse that capture my attention. One is lips. They're doing something. There is some form of expression in this worship. And so worship has an expression. You, you, can't, be, you can't sit idly by when your team just scored the winning, the winning goal at the end of the game. There's an ex, you express your joy. And so worship has an expression, lips. And then he goes, as as you read through the rest of that verse, he talks about heart. He said, they got the lips out there, they they got the expression, but the heart's missing. And so it's all, it's all external, it's not heart. And so if the heart is not in support of the actual expression, then he's saying that that worship is meaningless. And then the third thing is this, he says, it's, he said, it's in vain because they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. That has to do with how we actually live. And so there's these three elements. There's the element of expression, of heart, and life. And expression, heart, and life. If I tell my wife, if I get her roses once every month and tell her I love her, but the rest of the month I treat her badly, is she gonna, accept, is she gonna say, oh, well, well, I really believe you, you really, no, she's gonna say, well, look, if you really love me, forget the roses, just treat me with kindness and patience the rest of the month. So you see, the, the life 
And, and I'm not saying that our lives have to be perfect. That's not the case at all, but my life needs to be pointed towards God. I need to be taking steps his direction and growing that direction in godliness according to what scripture tells me a godly person is. And so when we really start to, to grasp this whole concept of worship, it becomes a real dynamic part of life. In fact, it's as simple as waking up in the morning and the first thing you think is, hey God, good morning. This is gonna be a great day, God, because you're in it. And I wanna walk with you and I wanna know you better today and I, and I wanna experience your life more today. And I wanna do what you want me to do today. That's, that's, that's a heart of worship, just expressing that. And, and so when we look at the Christmas story and we see the birth of Jesus, it's just punctuated with events of worship. You know, the, uh, the shepherds coming the night that Jesus is born. And the shepherds are out in the field, and an angel appears to them and says, hey, there's great things happened. You need to go. You need to, you need to find this baby. But then what happens is the sky fills with angels singing glory to God and glorifying and worshiping God. You know, it's easy to think that that would be kind of like a play that we would put on where we have all the angels in the back room and right at that instant, there's a, a director of the play who says, okay, angels, you're on. And so the angels all hustle down to the sky from heaven. Really what was happening there was this. God just, just drew back the veil. He just pulled the curtain back so these shepherds could see what was happening in heaven. And so worship was a big part of, of this, this whole Christmas story. Um, Joseph himself, everything he did in obedience to the dreams he had, those were all acts of worship. That, that was living worship where he is living his life in obedience. And you see the wise men coming uh, sometime after Jesus was born and, and they're worshiping as well. But the, the biggest act of worship, the place I wanna focus here for just a moment has to do with Mary. You, you picture Mary, this young woman, teenager, she's excited about getting married, looking forward to her wedding night and to everything that's gonna happen. And this angel comes, and the first thing he tells her is, don't be afraid. And he says, you found favor with God. You're gonna have a baby, Mary. And that baby's gonna be named Jesus. He's gonna be great. He's gonna be the son of David. He's gonna take over David's throne, and his kingdom will never end. And so Mary is thinking, what the, how? I'm a virgin. And so the angel then talks to her and says, look, it's gonna be the Holy Spirit. It's gonna be a God thing, a supernatural thing. And he ends that by saying, for nothing is impossible with God. And you know, that's one of the most powerful verses, I think, in the Bible. But really, the translation, nothing is impossible with God, isn't sufficient because the actual literal uh, wording there says, nothing God says is impossible. Nothing God says is impossible. And actually, it's a double negative. And in Greek, a double negative is good. How many of you know grammar and have been taught you don't use a double negative in English, okay? In Greek, a double negative just intensifies the whole thing. And so you, the, the real literal, literal translation of that would be this. It is impossible for anything God says to be impossible. And so he just reassures her, Mary, God can do this. And Mary's response, and I'm gonna say this, still with some confusion as to what's gonna happen, still with, with fear, I mean, how is she ever gonna explain this to Joseph? What's her family gonna think? 
she still says, behold the handmaid of the Lord, let it be done to me as you have said. And I think that was one of the greatest acts of worship we could ever see when she, she just said, okay, here I am, I'm yours. And I believe this, that worship that comes out of pain Worship that comes out of a life where we are experiencing uncertainty and confusion and and loss, and yet we still turn to God and we see, God, you're good. God, I'm declaring your goodness right now. God, I'm saying I am yours, and I'm trusting in you no matter what. That has to be like the sweetest worship heaven ever, ever experiences, because it's coming not out of just simple thanksgiving for the good things, but it's affirming God's goodness even when there's confusion and pain involved in the whole process. So Mary, she, she just lays her life out there before the Lord. But you know, her worship wasn't always this uh, melodramatic. It was kind of like dramatic there, wasn't it? And I doubt that she was jumping up and down with joy as she was saying it, but it was a, a heartfelt expression of worship. But later when she visits her cousin, Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus, and, and they are interacting and they're, you know, they, they're both pregnant. And when Mary comes into Elizabeth's presence, John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy because God's, the Holy Spirit is on him even in his mother's womb. And he knows that the Messiah just came into my presence. And so uh, Elizabeth blesses Mary, and then Mary says this. Listen to these words. She says, my soul is ecstatic, overflowing with praises to God. My spirit bursts with joy over my life-giving God. So I read that, and I think Mary was a joyful, expressive worshiper, to use words like that. And Jesus grew up in that home. Jesus himself, the Bible says in Hebrews 1.9, Hebrews 1.9 says, right, it's quoting an Old Testament passage, but God, Jesus, your God, your Father, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Jesus was anointed with joy and gladness more than anyone around him. He was the happiest guy in his whole, in his whole group. He, he was the guy that kept the party going. He, he was the guy that everybody else wanted to be with because they felt so happy and good when they were with him. And so Jesus was one who had this, he had this aura of joy around him. And I think that for us, especially if, um, if you're a parent, creating a joyful atmosphere in your home is a, an important thing. And it doesn't all have to be you don't always have to say Jesus uh, to sanctify every moment of joy, okay? If you know Jesus and your home is consecrated to him, then just having fun in your home with your kids and letting them know that, that they can have fun is, is, is just a wonderful, blessed by God thing. My, um, my oldest son, who lives in Chicago, <clears throat> He and his um, family had this thing going up. I'm assuming they still do it. But we were there one night, and our oldest granddaughter, Phoebe, got out of her chair and said, Alexa, play dance music, and then dance party. And everybody has to stop what they're doing and dance. 
So we did that on our staff meeting last Tuesday night. I told them at the beginning, when you hear dance music, you have to stand up, shout dance party, and everyone has to dance. And so probably half a dozen times throughout the night, <laughs> uh, we had that music come on, and everyone stood up and shouted dance party, and everyone danced. It was just joyful. It was fun. And, and I, think it was, I think it was worship. It was, we were expressing our joy in knowing God and in being with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ before God. And so this whole idea of having joyful worship is, is just a crucial thing. And, you know, Mary and Joseph, they were Old Testament people. And so what you see expressed in the Old Testament as worship would have been very much a part of their culture and their home. In fact, there was one point in the Old Testament right after God had parted the Red Sea so that uh, the, the Hebrews could get away from the Egyptian army, which was pursuing them, and pass through the Red Sea to freedom. When they got to the other side, it says Miriam led all the ladies in this big dance party, in this big celebration before the Lord, thanking God for what he had done. And you read through the book of Psalms, and you see over and over again, it tells us, shout to God with joy. Shout to him, praises to him, and worship and joy. And it says, praise him with dance. Dance before him over and over again. Dance before God because he's so good. And expression of joy like that just blesses his heart. So ultimately, David represents joy in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 6, 14 to 16, David is taking, bringing the ark back to Jerusalem after a period of time when it was the Ark of the Covenant was a very special part of their worship. And as they're bringing the ark back into the city, David dances before the Lord. And it says he danced with all his might. And in fact, his wife, Michael, looks down out of a window and sees him dancing. And here was her response to him. But, but as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked down from her window. When she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. And so this creates a rift before Michael, between Michael and her husband, David. When David comes back to the house, she, attacks, she, she says, you are making a fool out of yourself out there, humiliating yourself in public. And you know what David says? David says, I was dancing because God made me king of his people. And he says, I'm going to dance because of that. And he says, you think that, was, you think that was looked foolish? I'll be a bigger fool than that. There's a song written years ago called uh, Undignified. And, and in the song, he says, I, I will become more undignified than this. And so David, he just had this freedom to express his heart of joy and passion and love for God. Jesus is called the son of David. And I can't, I can't imagine Jesus not being a dancer as well. Now, you look at the New Testament, and you would say, well, when would he have danced? You know, there was a wedding feast in Cana, and they ran out of wine. Mary comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, they ran out of wine. And through the whole story, Jesus turns water into wine. That's where the water into wine thing came from. But the reason it was so significant was that this couple, this young married couple, they would have been shamed by this, not having enough wine for their party. But the real, real problem was the party wasn't ready to end. 
because weddings in those days lasted two or three days. And it wasn't time for the party to end yet. And so Jesus was the guy that kept the party going there in a real literal sense. All right? Now, my favorite Jesus movie is called simply Jesus. Um, the actor was a guy named Jeremy Sisto. It's, come, it's, it's from 1999. Uh, in that, it shows Jesus at the wedding. It's a very short video, so you've got to watch carefully. But uh, let's watch Jesus going to this wedding and being part of the party, okay? All right. I like that, Jesus. Don't you? I like that, Jesus. Uh, we're going to end our day today with a dance party, okay? And um, what I want you to, to remember is this, that Jesus sets us free. And in fact, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18 says this. It says, for the Lord is the spirit, and wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had our eyes opened can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. But the Holy Spirit brings freedom. Freedom for a number of things. Freedom from the fear that God's going to reject us. Freedom from the control of sin in our lives. We become new creations. We, become, we get a new nature. We're set free from the old sin nature. Freedom from the fear of what other people might think of us. He, he releases us into freedom to know and love God and to express that with joy. So would you all stand with me? Now, I want to say this. If, if you are really dance impaired, then... And I'm speaking to the men right now, okay? Then tapping your foot and moving one arm counts, okay? For you, that might be really crazy, all right? That might be really crazy. Hey, why don't you come down? Let's just fill the aisles and come on down to the front, okay? Just come on. Even if you're not used to this, listen, if you're in, if you're in a tight pack of people, nobody can see you dancing. So just come on down front, okay? All right, so as soon as the music starts, come on up. You want to come up? All right, now. Okay, listen up, listen up. Listen up, please. As, listen up, please. As, as soon as the music starts, we're all going to yell, dance party, and we're dancing for the Lord today, okay? This is to honor Jesus, all right? Okay? All right, so get ready. Music starts. We're going to yell, dance party, then we're going to dance. I don't even know how long. We're just going to dance.